we're studying the book of First John. Um, there's two reactions to the book that people might have that I believe John would be grieved if they have these reactions. And um, one reaction of those two, I'm not sure has happened among us, uh, and that's pride, um, specifically as a result of studying First John. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Uh, but one of the reactions that I think John wouldn't want to happen, I, I think is happening a little bit, so I want to just talk about that for a second, um, and for some of the teaching tonight. Um, I was talking with someone in our church last week who was feeling discouraged because of the kind of black and white language that John uses to speak about obedience and saying, hey, if you're really God's child, you won't continue in sin. Basically, you're gonna, you'll, you'll stop sinning, he kind of says. And so this person was like, well, why am I still sinning? Just a frustration with that, right? And somebody else in our church this week was sharing with me that there's the same sin pattern that they continue to fall into, and it's causing them to just to doubt their salvation. Because John says in chapter 3, verse 9, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So why do I, why do I keep on sinning? Um, even last Wednesday, there's somebody sharing just the concern that they have when we talk about, well, this is, if we know that we have eternal life by some love that we can see, some Christ-like love that we see in ourselves, but then when we respond not like that, like when he describes when we see a brother in need and, and we don't respond to that need, we close our heart against them, somebody is saying, well, what, what does that mean? He says, how does the love of God abide in that person? In verse 17. But we've been saying this this epistle is supposed to be about assurance. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that we may know that we have eternal life, not so that we can doubt that we have eternal life. And so I, I think, I really see some, some in the church, not this maybe isn't all, but just wrestling between God's ideal and the reality. And John almost seems to be talking about some contradictory proposals about the ideal and what actually happens. Uh, there's a commentator that wrote um, about, um, this was a little bit earlier in, in the book of John. Hey. Hey. Come on. What's on your hand? Are you oh, sitting my, God. God. my dog? Here, Megan, you can come sit over here. No, I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, a commentator um, said this of this struggle between these two things John is describing the ideal character of the Christian ideal in the sense that this is the reality intended by God for him even if he falls short of it while he still lives in this sinful world the person who is conscious of the new beginning that God has made in his life will seek to let that divine ideal become more and more of a reality. He knows that he cannot claim sinlessness, for he's already read the first chapter of the epistle, which talks about we all have sin. But at the same time, he can claim God's power to enable him not to sin. This is the tension in which the Christian lives, and John has portrayed it realistically. The believer conscious of sin need not therefore lose heart. Um, this, this portion, chapters 3 or so, is a promise of what God intends him to be, and he looks forward to the time when he shall be like Christ at his appearing. To maintain the balance between warning believers of the seriousness of their falling into sin 
and consoling those who are overwhelmed by their sins is not easy. John's attention moves from one to the other, and we must allow both types of statements to have their full effect. So, like, this is, this is super hard. This is something that I, is content-wise hard with the Gospel of Matthew that we study, because it seemed like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But then the book seems to show, by the way, you can't be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. In a similar way, this epistle of John is saying, being born of God means necessarily you will begin to obey his commands. You will begin to love the brothers. But by the way, you're, you're not going to be able to do those things. You're not going to be without sin. So it's like, it, it's understandably a little bit confusing. You can't continue to sin, but you will continue to sin, John is saying. So um, we'll address that a little bit tonight. And first of all, I think it's really good that we have our eyes open wide to this, um, to this fact, like I think some people are expressing, that living in sin is diametrically opposed with eternal life. Like, to use some of John's examples, it's as different as light and darkness, love and hate, life and death, God and Satan. Like, you see the contrast in those things? Well, that's what living in sin is like, to, you know, versus the one who's walking in the light, walking in Christ. So, we can't do it. We can't stop sinning. So, do we give up? Do we just doubt our eternal life? And how is that encouragement? How is that assurance? And I know that's the sense of just what a couple people have explained. Not overwhelmingly so, but just something that we're wrestling through with. So let me pray before I go on. Father, um, I pray that our time together looking at these two verses, um, that we would understand what John has to say to his audience, that we would um, hear the truth that, that we specifically need to hear out of that, and that we would find out in that just just what you have to say to us through John. Uh, would you give us clarity, Lord? Would you give us um, assurance in you? I pray. Amen. Yeah. So John has just described love or selflessness in um, <laughs> chapter 19. Sound like sorry, uh, sparkling water. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see water, but I hear coke. Um. John's described love in verse 19, where we ended last week, or in verses really 16 through 18, where we looked last week. Christ laid down his life, and we should lay down our lives for the brothers. And he gets real practical with what that could even look like in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the kind of love that God is describing that gives some evidence that, hey, this person truly has eternal life is like, I really love you so much that I'm willing to give up what I have for your sake. It's agape is the word that he's using here several times. And it's when we do those types of things, like that example that he gives, that he says in verse 19, by this, by, by that type of living, by that type of love expressed, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And that's where we ended last week. But it goes on this week, verse 20, for whoever, for whenever our heart condemns us, 
God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, verses 19 and 20 is kind of awkward to read, um, really, in all of the English translations that I looked at. And I understand, I don't know Greek, but some smart Greek people say it's, it's grammatically awkward even in the original language and kind of unusual the way that it's set out. And y'all, I literally spent hours upon hours trying to just kind of understand the sense of those couple of verses. Um, we're not going to spend hours and hours <laughs> trying to understand those two verses. But um, where there is much uh, unity in the interpretation of that, I'll share with you. First of all, in verse 19, when he says, by this, I know I said this last week, but by this refers back to by by this evidence of of love, a willingness to lay like what he's just said in verse 17, 18 a love in, in deed and in truth. It's by this when we see that that um, that we understand that we are of the truth and that we reassure our heart before him. Um, I mentioned this last week too, probably verse 19, even though it starts a new paragraph in some translations, it's kind of, it seems to be just one consistent flow of thought. That was the idea of of many of the um, interpreters, so we're we're just going to see it as kind of a a consistent flow. The the original or the earliest manuscripts we have doesn't necessarily have a paragraph right there, but um, so by this refers to that kind of love. Also, we've said this over and over, the flow of this letter is about having confidence or assurance before God. We know that we have eternal life. And a significant chunk of that confidence, not only right here in this, this, these specific verses, but throughout, comes through the evidence that we see in our lives or somebody else's life of obedience and love. For example, meeting somebody's need if you have the ability to do so in verse 17. So here's, here's where I think these verses are going. Our most natural, fleshly, worldly tendency when we see someone in need is what? Like closing our hearts, right? Self-centered. Like our, if we have a go-to in our flesh, it's going to be self-centeredness. We think of ourselves first. Like, I don't want to give up what I have. I close my heart against my brother. In fact, maybe one of the clearest evidences that we are in Christ is is selflessness. Man, that's a that's definitely a, a fruit of people who are following Christ is we become less about ourselves and more um, willing to give, especially to the brothers. But whenever we aren't loving brothers and sisters as we ought to, like what John has just described in verse 17 as as an example, that's when, I think, verse 20 says our heart condemns us. When we are emotionally and practically closed to the needs of our brothers and sisters around us, our heart condemns us. As, As believers, we know it. We can feel, I can feel when that happens, when that need is presented of another believer in Christ, and I have the ability to meet it, and I close, like, I, I recognize it. I sense that in my conscience when my heart is closed off. I can feel when when my heart closes off to a brother. And and that's my tendency. And if I proceed in that, then I'm acting no different than probably who John would call a child of the enemy or um, just like everybody else. But look what happens um, in, in verse 20. 
for a, the genuine Christian, whenever our heart condemns us, remember also a couple weeks ago, a couple times Randy has pointed out that when it's speaking us and our and we, that's talking about us as believers, okay, versus he talks about, you know, other people or whenever somebody or these, which is maybe or maybe not believers, but this is, this is us. He's talking about us as believers. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. When the situation arises, say just to use the example, just to kind of flow his follow of thought, this flow of thought, when the situation arises that I have something that somebody else needs, and in my old self, born of the flesh, wants to do my own thing, wants to satisfy my own needs, when my heart condemns me in that, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't, Jared, close your heart to this. God is greater than our heart, and his love overcomes our selfishness. I love the line, though I, I, I wish I could um, I wish I could communicate fully and even understand fully what this means, but God is greater than our heart. Uh, that's a really full statement, but um, when we are convicted and we feel this struggle, I should do this, I don't want to do this, I believe it's saying God is stronger. God can then in that moment empower us to do what's right. And then when we do what's right, when we do open our heart, when we do act in generosity or act in love or willing to lay down our life or walk in obedience, like it said previously, when we do this, we can say, hey, I'm going, this going against my natural tendency loving like this, I must be in God. I must have, this is truly evidence of eternal life because this is not something that I have within me. By this, he says in verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth. We'll kind of um, complete some of that thinking in a minute. The, the next little statement says he knows everything. He knows everything. What do you think, just, what do you think that adds into the equation? I'm not looking for a specific um, answer, but just the fact that God knows everything, how does that play into this, do you think, or what? Why might that be important or helpful to what John's saying? You can say something if you like. I think so often we feel like if people only knew, then they would think X, Y, Z. And that can that brings condemnation. So just mm-hmm. pointing out the fact that like and God sees it all. Like, um, he loves you fully. Uh, you, you can't hide. You're not fooling anyone. Uh, you know. Or you might be fooling someone. Not God. <laughs> not God. I think he speaks so, so, you know, our strength in trying to love. That beyond our ability to love, it's like, well, you reach a limit. It's like, well, God sort of takes over. For me, that's what that communicates. That, um, sometimes when we, like, he, he is really the source of it. So when we reach our strength, our, our limits, it's like, well, there he is. It's all right. You're all right. He's right. Yeah, so I put down sometimes not, not knowing how to help is different than not wanting to help. Like, God, like sometimes we don't know the right way to 
loved somebody. But the reality is he doesn't care so much about that. We talked about that last week. Like he, he wants our open hearts and, and love for somebody. So maybe he maybe he knows everything just has to do with this fact that hey uh, he, he can he he understands my my sentiment and I just don't know the correct thing to do this. Or maybe negatively like he knows if I'm doing this act of love under obligation, which he doesn't really want that either. Like, well, just I have to do this. But no, he actually wants us to feel love and to grow an actual real love for people, not just we have to do this. Um, yeah, I think I like the verse in 1 Corinthians 4 5 that talks about when the Lord comes, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. That gives me a little bit of um, confidence and a little bit of accountability just in, in my decision to... Um, follow his command to love my brothers or not. Um, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, so when we are displaying love and obedience and the like, we have confidence before God. Now, so he describes the occasion when, when that is not the case, or that's not the direction that we're heading, and now he's describing the occasion that the heart submits to this greater, stronger desire of God who's greater than our heart when we choose to love our brother in deed or truth and we have confidence before God. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about confidence. Randy was talking about confidence in chapter 2, verse 28, which talks about if we abide in him, when he appears, we'll have confidence before him and we won't shrink in shame at his coming. Okay, It's the same word for confidence here. Um, confidence, Randy uh, did a good job explaining it just in, it's, it's this um, when we're abiding in Christ and God, we have this ability to speak freely. We don't have to, like it says, we don't have to shrink away in shame when, when he would return. But we have this, we have our head up and we're, you know, not boasting in ourselves. But it's like, no, we're having regular communication and fellowship and abiding in God. So we have this confidence. It's like he said, uh, um, like sometimes when you don't keep in good contact with somebody and then you like see them in a public place, what do you do? You're like, well, kind of like hide your face. <coughs> oh shoot, I was supposed to email them or I should have touched faces with them, you know. And it, it's not that. Or it's it's not what um, we talked about Cain and Abel last week. This is here's what Cain says, or here's what God says. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. We talked about this story last week. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So listen, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay. Whatever that looks like. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And that word accepted literally means, Will not there be a lifting up of your face? Like you have confidence. If you do well, will you not have confidence to approach me? It's kind of like what God is telling Cain. So two weeks ago, um, John was talking about confidence at, at the time of Christ's return. Now we're talking about confidence, a similar sort of confidence, but it's in our approaching God in prayer. So in verse 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. What? Whatever we ask, we receive from him. What? Whatever we ask... That's like that's that's a huge promise. We're going to talk more about that in chapter five. Okay, um, the Bible speaks 
10 times probably a very similar idea. Um, and you guys know verses like this can easily be taken out of context, like we just read that phrase, right? It's not just that everyone gets whatever they ask for. If you're a Christian, just ask them for whatever you want and that will give to you. But make sure when you're reading this verse specifically, we'll look at that you read the whole thing. Look at verses 21 and 22. What, what gives us confidence before God that we are able to approach Him in prayer and expect that whatever we ask, we will receive from Him? Yeah, our, our heart doesn't condemn us, or what's it say after? Because we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. That's where we have confidence before him and whatever we ask, we receive from him. I would even take that to the level that says the more we are submitted to God in obedience, the more our will aligns with his and the more he hears and, and is willing to give what we ask of him and wants to give what we ask of him. But I love what there's, there's a commentator that said this. Obedience, this is really important. Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. Answered prayer isn't, look at all that I've done, God, so now I deserve for you to give me. It's not the cause of that, but it's because we're just following the criteria that God has set up to listen and to answer our prayers by walking in obedience and love with him. So um, Matthew 7 is one of those places that Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. But that comes in the context, like just a couple verses later, Jesus says, be perfect, like we mentioned earlier, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the ideal. You could say the extent to which we live in that ideal, the extent to which we can say, I've kept his commandments, I've done what pleases him, is the extent to which he, we can say, he gives me whatever I ask. Okay. What I think is really cool is how John has kind of laid this out. One of the specific ways that John says that we, that, that this obedience condition, if you will, is met is, is by loving the brothers, is by maybe giving brothers, giving to the brothers, not just financially, but just but meeting a need of a brother. So at the very time that we are giving, this is the action of our love and our obedience, the very time that we're giving it's then that God is hearing us and we're receiving from him. Like those are the two things I think that come very closely in the letter here that John's writing. And it's not as if we're going to be emptied and dried out as we're giving to people, but God promises us even specifically in that time. That's, that's one, of the, one of the reasons that he's hearing us and that he's giving to us in those times. And I like to think of it this way. Um, like... Maybe the person that I am laying down my life for, which an example of would be giving financially, you could pray for somebody, you give your time, whatever it is, but maybe the person that I'm giving to, see if this makes sense, has just been asking of God, and in me giving to them, they're receiving what they need from God, and maybe in their, their receiving, because they're keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him by loving someone else who's receiving what they're asking for from God because they're living in obedience and giving to somebody else. 
You see, like, I think this is the beauty of how Christian community and loving the brothers is to be set up. It's this beautiful thing. And you can also see how, how when we're not living in love and obedience to the Lord and we're shutting off these forms, like we, we, we're hindering the fellowship that we have with each other and with God. We're like clogging these, these pipes of God's generosity, of our own generosity, of our love. But as we're laying down our lives for the brothers, it's, it's, it's in that type of action that we're also receiving anything that we ask from God. And John goes on to comment, hey, here's more on what keeps this kind of open um, flow of, of receiving from God. It says in verse 23, this is his commandment. Here's to go on to describe uh, what's going on here. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Now here's a simple summary of the commandment that we are to keep. I look, he is a singular. Here, here's the commandment. It's interesting. And he says two things. They're all tied up into one. There's the doctrinal side. Believe in the name of God's son, Jesus Christ, which we've talked about confess that Jesus, this historical person in the flesh, is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. We'll talk more about that next week, too. That's the doctrinal side. There's a practical side of keeping his commandment that's, like we've described, laying down our lives for the brothers in love. So it's faith, that belief, and love. They're tied together um, as one command. It's not just cognitive belief. It's not just random acts of love, but... Um, it says, Paul says, it's faith working through love. This is the commandment that he gives to us. Now, if you remember, um, I was saying at the beginning, talking about this struggle of John saying, being born of God means necessarily that you will obey his commands. You will love the brothers. Oh, by the way, you won't do that. You can't do that. You're not without sin. That, that struggle that I was talking about at the beginning. I want to think, think this through uh, with the last verse in mind. How is this tendency in my flesh to continue to sin, how is that tendency overcome? How will I get to this point where I'm living out decisions that actually indicate, oh, Jared is truly born of God. He is truly possessing eternal life. Like, how does that actually happen? Verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us how is it that we are to live out this obedience and love that seems so impossible how are we going to live in this righteousness and love that John is saying well this should be evidence of the eternal life that we have but you won't be able to do it how are we going to do it by the spirit whom he has given us okay it's not just like what we've read a lot of so far we need to be in God we need to abide in him we need to walk in the light I need to keep his commandments that's true yes that's true but at the same time he abides in us. We're in God. God in fellowship. He is with us. Now, this is the first time, this is the first time in the book of First John of the mention of the Spirit directly. Like, we've kind of alluded to it in the past, but it's the first time he says Spirit. This is how we know we have eternal life. This is another by this statement. We notice the Spirit of God in our life, lives, which is evidenced by 
obedience and love and confession of Jesus we'll talk about next week. God's spirit abiding in us is doing the work in us. I see things in you that must be God in you because it's not you, like the love that he's describing. One of the greatest maybe evidences of God's spirit is the ability to agape, love someone, right? This active, willful, unconditional, sacrificial love. The ability for you when the time comes, instead of closing your heart to a brother in need, you lay down your life for them, is because God, who is love and who is righteousness, abides in you. And like we said earlier, he's greater than your heart. Jesus says, by this all people will know that your disciples, you're my disciples, if you have agape love for one another. How is that kind of love possible only through the Spirit in us? The solution is the Spirit of God. So, in the Gospel of Matthew, this problem, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. By the way, you can't be perfect. It's impossible. The solution that I hope that we are driven to over and over again is you have to turn to Jesus the righteous one who is your perfection. Because what's impossible with man is possible with God. And in the epistle of John here, being born of God means necessarily you, you're going to obey his commands. You're going to love the brothers. By the way, you won't be able to do that. What is the solution to that? Turn to God. Abide in God who is greater than your heart, who gives you his spirit to dwell in you, who empowers you to stop sinning. So, the specific, um, the kind of narrow goal of John in this book, uh, we've been saying, is, is to know what is the evidence of eternal life. Um, but if we back up one more step, I think we see that John is doing the same thing that Matthew is doing, the same thing that Peter does, that Paul does, the Old Testament writers do. He's pointing us to our never-changing, desperate need for God in our lives. And so... I wonder if like, we can see why John has to preach both the ideal, what our lives ought to be like, and the reality. If he only says the one side, you don't have to be perfect, it's okay. If that's all we hear, what, what's our tendency from that? Okay, I'll do what I want then, it's no big deal. If he only says, you have to be perfect, then he gets rid of our ongoing, ever-present need for Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit in our life, because we've already arrived there. We don't need that. So, try to just narrow it down and, and finish this up here, and then we'll have a little discussion. Um, and I really pray that this just hits you wherever you're at. Um, whether you're feeling good, like as we study First John, whether you're feeling good, like yes, I, 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 I've got eternal life, like it seems to be evident in my life, or whether you're feeling bad, like, hey, why can't I get this right? Like I keep sinning, I keep falling into sin. And this, what, what I'm about to say goes a little beyond the um, realm of these few verses that we looked at tonight, but it's definitely sticking to the book of First John. Um, but I want to address it because I feel like this is maybe where we're at. So listen to this statement that, that I think is, I hope is true and I hope helps us. The certainty of your eternal life right now is revealed 
in both your confidence and your confession. The certainty of your eternal life right now is revealed in both your confidence and your confession. Those who truly have eternal life experience times of confidence, for sure, and times of confession. Show me a person that doesn't have both of those, and I'll show you a person that I, I don't think has eternal life. A person with just confidence to stand before God, saying, look at my life, look at all I've done, I'm sure that I have eternal life, but without ever the confession of sin is, like John would say, they're lying to themselves, and they don't believe they need the Spirit of God. But the person who continually just lives in confession, but they never have confidence before God because they have no obedience or love evidence in their life, well, that person doesn't have the Spirit of God because the Spirit necessarily produces those things. So the certainty of your eternal life right now is revealed, I think, both in this confidence that we feel before God because of the display in our life of love and obedience and our confession of our sin. Those who have eternal life, I think, have both confidence and confession. And it's a scary thing, y'all, to constantly kind of bounce in and out of confidence of eternal life as we bounce in and out of righteousness. Well, now I don't know, and now I do know, and now I don't know, but I don't think that's what John is going for. We've already learned from John that when we sin, we confess our sins, and what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that confession, it pops us right back into confidence. Not because of ourselves, but because of him. And in the same way, the confidence that comes from obedience, if we've understood this passage today correctly, is not because of ourselves, but it's because of his spirit that is in us, which is overcoming our selfishness. So where does our assurance of eternal life come from? Well, it doesn't come from me or what I've done, but it comes from God and what he has done in Christ in the forgiveness of my sins, and what he's doing by his spirit in my life as I walk in obedience and love. We, so we have assurance when we're not sinning, because in that time we know that God must be abiding in us, and we have assurance when we are sinning as believers because we know to confess and that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And y'all, there's not a greater assurance that we could have and one that's based on a perfect and loving God instead of whatever we can do to try to muster that up. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to think of just a simple way to kind of remember this, and I think this is, I think this is where God would, would like for us to be, where John would like for us to be, is, is this attitude. God, I see you, I need you. I see you, I need you. God, I'm confident because I see you at work in my life by your spirit. God, I confess because I need you. I see you. I need you. There's probably one side of that or the other that you more identify with right now. And maybe tomorrow it'll be a different thing, next week a different thing. I see you, God, like, yeah, I, I, I do, I have eternal life because I, I can see your spirit, God, working in my life. It's not, it's obviously not me, it's you. I see you, God, I need you. I, I've, I've messed up again, and Lord, there's, there's forgiveness in you, and I reach out my hand to you in desperate need. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that there's, 
a couple wrong ways that people can take the letter. The one that I spoke about that some of us are feeling is maybe just a little bit of despair. Hey, I'm discouraged because I can't get it right. But no, the person with eternal life says, God, I need you. That's that's what we do as people with eternal life. The other one I didn't talk to is, is pride. We could say, hey, look at all that I've done. Like you read this book and yep, I'm, I'm loving and yep, I'm obedient. And yes, I've said that Jesus is the son of God and I'm confident because of all this righteous and loving things that I've done. But that's not it. The person with eternal life says, God, I see you in my righteousness and my love. God, I see you, and God, I need you. And there's no pride in that. All the assurance of our salvation comes from God, and all of the glory goes to God. Let me pray. Um, Father... We live in this reality every day, the reality of knowing how we ought to live and the reality of how we actually do live. And thank you, Lord, that at times, hopefully increasingly so, we can point our finger to the work that you're doing in our lives as you, as you make us more like the, the character of God who is love, who is righteous, who is pure, Lord, I pray that in in both of those situations that we find ourselves in, following you in obedience and in the situation that we find ourselves not following you, when our heart condemns us and we're doing what we ought not to do, in both of those times, God, I pray that we would look to you. I believe that's where your word drives us. That's where John wants to drive us. That's where the entirety of your scripture wants to drive us to, is our need of you in our lives. So God, may we see you, may we humbly see you in the work that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, may we come to you saying, God, we need you. Amen.